Hey there, Pumpcasters, and today we're going to talk about something very common, really everywhere, but definitely in the ICU setting. It can come from up top or down below. It can be dramatic or subtle. Oh, be positive. What you're learning won't be in vain, or maybe it will. Or maybe it's arterial, because today we're going to be talking about GI bleeds. It's in the game. Whew! GI bleeding is one of the most common ailments we encounter, and it can cause a host of consequences, ranging from simple abdominal pain to full-blown hemorrhagic shock and death. So understanding how to manage it is essential. Let's get our cortis and our coffee. My blood is boiling with anticipation. So let's get past the obvious for anybody listening out there. What is a GI bleed? Um, Bleeding from your GI tract. Great answer. But what can cause a GI bleed? Well, when we think about what causes you to bleed from your GI tract, we can divide it into upper and to lower. So let's talk about upper GI bleeds first. That is GI bleeding specifically from the upper GI tract. What are the most common causes? I think about things like gastric and duodenal ulcers, especially in the setting of that patient who's chronically crunching on NSAIDs or H. pylori, which kind of wreck the lining of the uh, upper GI tract there. Another super common one in our patients with chronic liver disease will be esophageal varices. Those can easily burst and have a very brisk bleed. But some other common ones are esophagitis and a Mallory Weiss tear. That would be that classic presentation of the patient who was retching and retching and retching, and now all of a sudden they have some hematemesis. AVMs are also something to think about. Totally. Now, many people with upper GI bleeds present with melana. Why does melana happen? Well, melana happens when blood is digested. So that's that dark kind of tarry stool that we have. But they also present with hematemesis. And some of the hematemesis may be bright red, or some of it may be coffee ground if the stomach has had time to digest it. Oh, that's why you had the coffee joke. I get it now. (laughs) It took you a minute. What about hemodynamics? What happens, John? So the first thing you'll probably notice is tachycardia. And while we always think of these patients as hypotensive, initially they typically only have orthostatic hypotension. So watch out for your patients that are walking around with GI bleed. And that goes for both upper and lower GI bleeds, just to be clear. Any loss of blood is going to result in tachycardia that eventually kind of fluffs out into an orthostatic hypotension and then frank hypotension and shock. So let's talk about lower GI bleeds. What are some common causes of lower GI bleeds? These, in contrast, often come from diverticulosis, ischemic bowel, infectious diseases of the bowel such as colitis, inflammatory bowel disease, or even neoplasms. Now, the things you may want to think about with lower GI bleeds would be like hematochesia, that is bright red blood from the bottom, or bright red blood per rectum, instead of that dark and tarry kind of looking stool. Both lower and upper GI bleed, like we said, can present with hypotension, pallor, and confusion. Active bleeding into the GI tract sets up a situation where blood cells can be digested, and when they are reabsorbed, many times this might manifest as an elevated BUN. Nerding out on fizz again. So, what do we do for patients who have GI bleeds? Uh, Stop bleeding. Great. Well, it's inside the patient, so how do I do that? not trained to do that exactly which specialty does that would be gi so from my standpoint 
getting in touch with GI early is important so that we can get source control. One thing that I do want to mention, though, is that many times when you try to call GI earlier, based on their own literature, I know that sometimes early endoscopy is not always indicated. One exception to that would be actively bleeding esophageal varices, which do need urgent intervention. They often will also request additional imaging, like a CT with oral contrast, or even a nuke med tagged bleeding scan. Right, so just get in touch with them early, and in my mind, it doesn't mean that you go see a patient who has a GI bleed, leave the room, and go call GI. In my mind, this is concurrent. Start your resuscitation, and then touch base with GI when it's appropriate or delineate somebody else to go and touch base with GI for you. So what makes a GI bleed impressive enough to go to the ICU? So there's a bleed criteria out there that will help guide you on ICU admission versus non-ICU admission. And that criteria consists of active bleeding, low blood pressure, elevated prothrombin, erratic mental status, comorbid disease. All you need is just one of those to get ICU criteria for GI bleed. And I think that's interesting to think about because many times our idea of the ideal, ideal, ideal ICU patient is one who's actively crashing and burning. But if you check out the bleed criteria, it doesn't take much for a patient to come to the ICU. You think about your Coumadin toxicity patients with a GI bleed. Well, based on the bleed criteria, they will be coming over based on that elevated PTINR. So keep that in mind, low threshold for transferring to a higher level of care. Of course, that's going to be dependent on your own institutional protocols. I don't know about you guys, but I remember when I was a new provider, not fully understanding all these guidelines, I I probably admitted a patient or two to the wards that should have gone to the ICU and and, uh, learned that lesson fairly quickly when you got to go back to their bedside a couple hours later and and they're white as a ghost, blood pressure's 60 over 40. Now, I think we're jumping the gun a little bit talking through logistics like calling GI or admitting to ICU because we haven't even talked about how do we approach these patients at first pass. Why don't we take it to a case and put this in context? Well, I think it's obvious who just came into our ED. Poor fella. Is it Phil? Poor fella can't stay out of trouble. Phil again. Real bad protoplasm. So, Phil. Phil comes back with a two-day history of lower GI bleed. The ED physician calls you and says that he's got a patient with lower GI bleed who's already on Levofed at 0.2 mics per kg per minute. He is awake and alert, though, and so he's calling you for admission. So you go downstairs and you see him. You've done your primary survey. You've stabilized his ABCs. That's airway, breathing, and circulation. And his first hemoglobin comes back at 3.2. And his infectious workup is negative so far. What's the first thing you think of? I think of access, personally. Whenever I hear GI bleed, it should immediately be followed by two large bore IVs. And just a quick aside, I know that some people might prefer a central line, uh, but when you compare the flow rates of a central line, which is very long with a small lumen, with a very short larger lumened large bore IV, especially if you can have two of them, I would take two of those bad boys any day. The one exception would be if you really need large volume resuscitation, something like a Vascath or a Cordis will get you very hefty flow rates in a, in a pinch if you need it. But the first thing I'm thinking about is access. Now this patient already obviously has access if they're on pressors. My one question though is why is he on pressors and not getting volume resuscitation? It's a great question. Exactly. So having large bore access is essential since blood is so thick and so viscous. It's like trying to push molasses through a straw. 
I do like me some molasses. <laughs> <laughs> Give me some biscuits and some molasses. You got to put that in. We have full license to use that. If only there was a, I don't know, physical principle that we could apply here. Ah, physics. Oh, what's that guy's name? Mm, Bernoulli. Bernoulli. Bartoli. It's Bernoulli. Oh, okay. Now, the Bernoulli principle. This is the idea that the flow of a fluid is determined by the length and the diameter of whatever it's flowing through. In this case, a vascular access device. So... Shorter and larger bore tubes have more flow than longer and smaller tubes. We use the cordis for large volume transfusion. But honestly, if I'm going to take the time to put in a cordis when I already have two large bore 14 gauge IVs in the AC, I'll just take the 14 gauge IVs personally. I just feel like it's so rare in practice for me to see someone able to get that large a peripheral in these patients because usually they're super dry. I'll take so, a 16. Yeah, but most of the time that I at least initially see them, they have 20 gauges in. And so right. that's why I'm dropping right. a cordis a lot of the time. I think that's fair. I, I guess my question is about threshold. You know, this isn't your person who's hemodynamically stable with the hemoglobin of four that you're dropping right. a cordis in, right? Right. I mean, these are the people that are sick who you know are going to need large volume resuscitation. Yeah. And hypotensive, actively bleeding patient. Okay, so to, to um, wrap all of that up, you'll take whatever you can get in a patient who's not expected to need large volume resuscitation. But right. if you have hemodynamic instability, as uh, sort of referenced by active hypotension, I suppose you could make the case for tachycardia or active bleeding who you think are going to need large volume resuscitation, go ahead and put that large bore catheter in, which in my mind is uh, a cordis in that scenario. They make the uh, rapid transfusion catheters. And I think if you can't find a blind large bore IV site, you could probably use ultrasound and get one. Right. Ultrasound peripheral kind yeah. of IV. The only other little aside on cordises, is it cordi? Can I say cordi? Cordi. Cordi sounds, right. sounds right. Is lately I've been dropping cordi in hemorrhagic shock patients, and then instantly find myself needing more central access because it's only got the one port. And if I've got them on a couple of pressors, and we're about to start massive transfusion protocol, I now all of a sudden need the cordis for massive transfusion, and then need some sort of other access for the pressors. And so, and our hospital has Mac nine style rapid infusion catheters, which we can link a picture to. Uh, so I've been, I've been putting a couple of those in lately. Vascast, not a bad route there too. Or when I have thrown a cordis in those patients, you just have to follow it up with a regular central line somewhere else. Yeah, logistics. But these patients need access is kind of the bottom line and good access. we've established IV access, now we obviously need to give blood, right? I assume? Or please right. to give blood? Preferably. Is that what happens? Blood, yeah. blood yeah. is good. What's our strategy here? In general, one unit of blood should raise your hemoglobin about one point. Okay. In most patients, you want the hemoglobin to be at least seven, but in patients with active acute coronary syndrome or coronary artery disease, you want the hemoglobin to be at least nine. So if I'm understanding you correctly, presumably in the absence of active bleeding, we've, we had a hemoglobin of six in order to get that hemoglobin to seven, we give one unit of packed red cells. Yeah, exactly. Cool. Remember that you should early on go ahead and send both a type in screen 
but probably a type and cross. Remember, a type and screen is kind of eyeballing what kind of blood type the patient has and what major antigens are present, whereas a type and cross is actually physically taking that blood and cross-matching it with what blood is going to be transfused. You can ask for emergency release blood, which is just uncross-matched, in a pinch. Over the course of my career, I've seen all the anemia and bleeding literature in general trends towards seven when I first started, depending on the type of disease, liver disease or sepsis or upper GI bleed, or then later lower GI bleed. A lot of times it was a hemoglobin target of eight or nine, depending on the disease. And almost everything seems to be trending towards seven with the exception being active coronary artery disease. Now, I think that's interesting because Number one, you don't often see that in practice. You see people like, oh, well, they had a big GI bleed and their hemoglobin's nine. Why don't we, quote, tank them up a little bit, especially if they're symptomatic, right? right? But it seems like the literature is pointing to this being harmful. The one argument that I've seen against this, though, is in patients who are actively bleeding, where things get a little bit more dicey. It's easy to say in the slow bleeding patient who's just got a newly low hemoglobin, give them a unit and see what it does. What do you do if they're actively exsanguinating? I'm going to quote Dr. Case's favorite example when when I was training. If I took a katana sword and cut your LED right now and you were just bleeding everywhere, and I checked your hemoglobin right then, what would your hemoglobin be? Well, my heart would hurt, first of all. My hemoglobin would be the same as it was before you cut my LAD. Right, because it hasn't had time to drop at that point. And so, yeah, you're right. The patient who's actively bleeding, who has a hemoglobin of 8 or 9, who just vomited up another liter of blood, I can totally buy the argument to give that patient more blood because you got to keep up, especially if they're hypotensive and shocky. But you're right. The, per- the patient who has drifted down to 4 over the course of days or weeks with an upper GI bleed, I would maybe give them a unit and see if they're not hypotensive. So the way that I view this, I think we have two different patient populations here. We have the patients who have a low hemoglobin but no hemodynamic instability. And those people, I think that we should have a hemoglobin target of seven, even if they still have an active GI bleed. So even if every day it still keeps drifting and drifting and drifting until they finally get an intervention, that target is seven. The other population that we have is the hemodynamically unstable volume down hemorrhagic shock patient. And in these people, your resuscitation strategy should not be give blood, check a hemoglobin and hope the blood pressure stays okay until that hemoglobin comes back. And even just saying that out loud sounds silly. We should be giving blood to whatever hemodynamic target we would for any other hypovolemic shock condition. Can we explain why targeting a higher hemoglobin is potentially harmful? When I read those studies way back a long time ago. We could dive into the literature and and see what the authors surmised. If I had to guess, it would be something along uh, the lines of transfusion reactions, which would be most common, with no actual benefit if you target a higher hemoglobin. It's not like a hemoglobin of 10 gives you better oxygen delivery to the point where it improves your mortality relative to a hemoglobin of 7. Right. And I'd have to go back and look to make sure. But one of the examples that they gave is part of what your body does when you're bleeding naturally is vasoconstrict everything down and you get things like splenic constriction from the spleen. And so artificially pumping up your hemoglobin can counteract some of 
your body's natural attempts to stop the bleeding. So we'll put all these studies we're talking about in the show notes, uh, specifically the TRIC trial, transfusions in critical care. There's a TRIS corollary for septic shock, and there was a new GI bleed study, uh, which all kind of support the idea of in the, in the patient population who's not actively exsanguinating in hemorrhagic shock before your eyes, target a hemoglobin of 7. All right, so let's take it back to Phil. So Phil was unstable. He did have a couple of large bore peripherals, but you elected to place a cortis in Phil, and he's getting four units of blood so far in an attempt to improve his hemoglobin from 3.2 to approximately 7.2. What are some other important things to do for Phil? So you could place an NG tube to suction. Are there any patients you don't want to do that in? So really, I would be hesitant to put an NG tube in if I knew that they had recent GI surgery or they had a history of varices. You definitely want to keep him NPO, right? You don't want to uh, stimulate the GI tract and cause further bleeding. And then go ahead and trend uh, an H&H. Uh, the frequency of which you trend it, I suppose, is an institutional preference. We do anywhere in the neighborhood of four to six hours. But you have to keep in mind that the more you draw blood, well, we're already bleeding, right? Right. Something pretty obvious, too, is to stop any kind of aspirin, antiplatelet, or VT prophylaxis, such as heparin sub-Q. And in the same vein, check his coags, fibrinogen, and all of that. So let's say Phil comes back with a two-day history of upper GI bleed. One of the ways that we can slow down bleeding is with a proton pump inhibitor. And really, the preference is to use these for our upper GI bleeds that may be related to a gastric ulcer that is exacerbated by gastric acid. Now, I've seen, when I first started, we're almost exclusively using PPI drips. Right. But now I'm seeing some IVBID, but I'm seeing a little bit of both. Which one should we use? A study was done showing that using the drip and using IV pushes, BID, actually was pretty much the same. So if I can pick either, then why would I pick one over the other? Is there any positives or negatives to drip versus BID? Well, <laughs> the drip, you're continuously using a line. So, so that's the biggest access. one. Uh, at least in my limited knowledge of IV compatibility, PPI drip needs its own access port. And so if you're only peripherals, it could potentially take up one of your only two large board peripherals. If you've got only a cordis and you only have one access point that way, then you're taking up, you can't mix it with your pressors, et cetera. So mm. that would That's be the reason point. to do IVBID, in my opinion. Me too, yeah. Another medication you can consider using is octreotide. Now, remember, this is specifically for bleeding that's caused by elevated portal pressures. So you're thinking about your esophageal varices. Uh, I suppose you could also make the case for rectal varices if the patient had them and they were related to elevated portal pressures. But octreotide is going to vasodilate that splanchnic bed and help to decrease that pressure in the portal system and therefore decrease some of that bleeding. So we checked Phil's coags, and let's say he's coagulopathic. Let's talk through some ways to reverse his coagulopathy. It depends on the etiology, right? Yeah. Yeah. So let's say his INR is 2.5. Okay. And do we have an etiology for that, Coumadin or anything of the, of the uh, He was previously on Coumadin after he left the hospital with ARDS and then had a DVT because he had limited mobility. So he was on Coumadin. 
He's, he hasn't taken it for a couple of days, but his INR is still 2.5. So current recommendations for Coumadin reversal are obviously administer vitamin K because Coumadin is a vitamin K antagonist. However, you can imagine that synthesis of vitamin K-dependent clotting factors is going to take some time, something we don't have. One of the things that's becoming more popular for Coumadin reversal and is actually recommended as first line is Kcentra. That's the brand name. We have no affiliation, aka PCC or prothrombin complex concentrate. And I feel like in the past, the standard of Coumadin reversal has been FFP, or fresh frozen plasma, along with the vitamin K, yeah. Yeah. So if I'm going to give FFP to this patient, how much should I give? I see people kind of throwing in a couple units here and there. So typically, I like to give about 15 cc's per kilogram, assuming each bag of FFP is roughly 250 cc's. Yeah, which can be a little institution-specific, so make sure you know how many mLs are in your bag of FFP. I would imagine this also depends on how high your INR is, right? Right. If your INR is only a little bit elevated, 15 cc's per kg might be too much. Do you remember the INR of a bag of FFP? Ooh, this is a good one. 1.5? Isn't that funny? 1.6 is what I've heard, but I don't know yeah, what it is. I think it Somewhere depends in, on the person. It depends on the bag. I thought it was 1.5 to 1.9, but there was a range based on the person it came from. Yeah, exactly. But that makes it funny. If your INR is 1.7, you load somebody up with FFP, there's a strong chance you could actually yeah. do yeah. nothing. Yeah, there's certainly a law of diminishing returns. The, the closer your INR gets to normal, the less and less you're going to do with that FFP. So the more you'll need, Right. Right. Some other things to consider would be like Praxbine for Prodaxa, Andexa for our factor 10A inhibitors. A Pixaban and Rivaroxaban. I got that. I can say that. Whoop. TXA could be really useful too, but you only want to use it if your fibrinogen is okay. What about DDAVP? Oh, yeah, and that uremic-induced platelet dysfunction. Makes your platelets sticky. So if your BUN's high, it can mess up the stickiness of your platelets. All about that Von Willebrand factor, baby. Let's talk about massive transfusion. In our institution, if you have an acute, massive, and uncontrolled hemorrhage, and you're expecting to transfuse greater than five or more units within an hour, you should order the massive transfusion protocol, or MTP. This is the idea that you administer eight to 10 RBCs in an adult patient in less than 24 hours, or it could be the acute administration of four to five packed red cell units within one hour. So there's actually a manual for this that was published in 2014 by the AABB that you should give a unit of FFP for every four to six units of PRBCs for a goal INR of less than 1.5. And you should give a unit of platelets for every two and a half units of PRBCs with a goal platelet count of greater than 50,000 in active bleeding. Now, you can use either a massive transfuser device. At our institution, we have the Belmont. Or don't be afraid to just pressure bag it. If you don't have a pressure bag, you can use your hands and just squeeze the bag down. Whatever you can do, don't be scared to give the blood quickly. Speaking of which, what happens if you give a large volume of blood like that? Very low calcium. Through citrate administration, which is used to preserve the red cells in the bag, it drops your calcium pretty precipitously. So what should we give these patients who are getting massive transfusion? We've kind of already answered it. Calcium? Yeah, it's calcium. So let's talk about the anomaly. Your profoundly anemic patient who doesn't have any obvious bleeding. Before you even do a workup, you need to check their abdomen. In a patient that isn't having obvious vomiting of blood or blood coming from the rectum, they could be bleeding intra-abdominally. Check a CT scan. If their belly's benign, 
and they're not bleeding from anywhere, think deeper. The obvious answer for anemia is always that the blood is lost somewhere else. You know, one of the things that can really hide blood is that retroperitoneal space. I've seen huge volumes of blood get hidden, and it doesn't change your exam until the volume is maybe four or five more liters of blood. And at that point, we may have a significant problem. Or we will have a significant problem because that's a lot of blood. Do not forget to look for retroperitoneal bleeds for sure. Remember, though, that hemoglobin can also be destroyed through hemolysis. So, you know, hematologic conditions that cause any shredding of red blood cells, look for those schistocytes, can be pretty impressive as well. We won't get into all the types of anemia, but we can briefly talk about a few. So anemia of chronic disease is pretty common, but it's not going to drop suddenly. For acute anemia of chronic disease, we look for normocytic red cells, while chronic Anemia of chronic disease, kind of a redundant nomer there, Mm -mm. would show as microcytic red cells. Sometimes bone marrow suppression can cause profound anemia. Just like the kidneys and the heart, sepsis can cause the bone marrow to actually stop producing red blood cells. Check your reticulocytes. CBC retic. AKA baby red cells. Either way, anemia without any obvious signs of bleeding is a good reason to go ahead and hit up your friendly neighborhood hematologist. All right, let's stop the bleeding and summarize. GI bleeding is common everywhere, but definitely in the ICU. GI bleeds can originate from the upper GI tract, which typically presents with melanin and hematemesis, or the lower GI tract, which typically presents with hematochesia. Source control is the only control, so getting an early GI consult for intervention is important. But make sure you do it in parallel with your resuscitation. Speaking of which, get that large bore short catheter as soon as possible. You can take your pick based on your personal preference or institutional protocol. We like to use the cortis in our crashing patients, large bore IVs in every else or if they're crashing and remember that ultrasound is a great tool keep them mpo place an ng tube as long as they don't have varices or recent surgery and start a ppr arcturotide drip depending on where the bleed's coming from or maybe just do pushes make sure you think about and check for coagulopathy and reverse it if present with ffp or the host of agents to reverse anticoagulants we now have access to and don't forget about that massive transfusion use the transfuser a pressure bag or your hands from a lovely volunteer more to come from that later and the non-bleeding profoundly anemic patient consider a hematology console until next time keep breathing keep reading keep streaming and stop the bleeding <laughs>